Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Let's go up the down staircase, shall we? In the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, let's find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's get to it. Good Saturday morning to you. Delighted to have you joining me, as I said, from all over planet Earth. The magic of technology continues to boggle my reptilian brainstem. Uh, seriously, I have spent the last month and a half, almost two months, buried in a lot of audio production, which is vocal surgery, to say the least, where I'm cutting, slicing, dicing, and splicing all kind of bits of audio together to create something basically out of nothing. So first and foremost, um, basically what I'm saying is my brain's fried. However, this is an opportunity for me to kind of get rid of all that stuff. You just get to be witness to it uh, wherever you happen to be in the world. And the technology that allows that to happen, as I'll illustrate here in just a second, is just a little bit this side of amazing to me. But I've been doing this project to uh, remember my friend John Denver for almost two months. Uh, this last Wednesday, the, October 12th, was the 25th anniversary of John's death in that plane crash back in 1997 in Monterey Bay, California. And there's been a couple of times, well, more than a couple of times when I was in the process of producing this tribute that aired on my podcast and also aired last Sunday on WCRW in uh, Washington, D.C. Why am I doing this? I mean, the guy has been gone for tw a quarter of a century, 25 years. And that came up in my mind quite often. And then it would leave as soon as I started interviewing somebody who also remembered their friendship, their connection, their performances with John. And the answer that floated up about the why was more about why not? To be remembered 25 years after you're gone in a good way is, uh, is an important thing, I think. It was important to the people who loved him and still do. It was important to his family, uh, important to his fans and his friends. And so to be remembered that way, to me, speaks of a life well lived, even though it ended very tragically and in, at a very young age, relatively at 53. And I think about the time I've had since he passed, 25 years. And I remember where I was at when I got the news. I was taking my kids to school. They were just little, uh, seven and five, I would guess, or eight and six, somewhere in there. And we had just moved into a new place in Upper Michigan. Uh, it was pouring rain. And I didn't have cable. You know, cable was still, I mean, it was there, but it wasn't like it is now. And I didn't have anything hooked up in the house electronically to hear the news. And so I was taking the kids to school. I got in the car and driving up the hill uh, to take them to class. I got the, you know, I heard it on the radio. And it was like a gut punch. Uh, so anyway, but that's where it was back then. And so ever since then, on occasion of his uh, his remembrance, I would do songs and shows and things like that. And uh, in 2007, I did a, a pretty heavy-duty one from uh, Oprah Radio that aired all over the place, and that was great. And I quite frankly didn't think I'd do another one until about a, two months ago when I got a call from Andy Denver who said that CBS uh, was going to do something on John on CBS Sunday morning. 
And I said, well, if CBS Sunday morning is going to do something on JD, then I got to do something, you know, kind of stay with them. And I have to tell you that, uh, as I said, the process of the why had me thinking about other things besides John. It had me thinking about how I've lived my life in the last 25 years. I could have never predicted that day that I heard the news that was in uh, October of 1997. I'd only been on the radio uh, two and a half months, something like that. And John was slated to be like my fifth guest. So when I got into radio, it was very rudimentary back in the day. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had five shows, five hours basically, to, uh, to do something. All of this was a karmic thing for me. And I felt like I'm supposed to do this. And I had the, the voice in my head to say, Let's, I, I need to go in this direction without any evidence that it would work, without any evidence that I, you know, that it would ever come to anything. Total faith. And I remember the first four shows were really pretty bad. How could they not be? The fifth show, Stedman Graham was my guest. He's Oprah's significant other. Still is, as I, I guess. Uh, we had played golf together a few times and, we're, you know, back then knew each other pretty well. And I remember calling him and saying, hey, I'm on the radio and I, I need a guest. And would you come on the air? And he says, well, wh where are you? And I kind of explained what was going on. He goes, what are you doing? I, Never mind. Just say yes or no. So he said yes. That tape's got to be here somewhere. I should really dig that out. It was the fifth show. It was a pivot show for me. If that fifth show didn't work, I was done. Stebbin got on the radio. He had a book come out on, on Monday. Uh, Tuesday, I think he and Oprah on the cover of People magazine. And on Wednesday, he was on with me at 9 o'clock in the morning at tiny little WDBC in Escanaba, Michigan. Like I had planned all the rest of it, and I hadn't. And the woman who was the program director at the time, Alice Subuco, came in and said, that was pretty good. And I got five more shows. And then I got five more shows. And I got five more shows. And so for the past 25 years or so, that all came from that pivot point of that fifth show. And doing the retrospective and the remembrance for John, I thought about him being the fourth guest. I don't know. Now, that would have been a big deal too, but that didn't happen. Instead, I got on and talked about losing him and our friendship and a bunch of other things with the director at the Windstar Foundation at the time. But it really, in doing this process, had me rolling back the years on my own life, which I did not expect. And I'm the first to say that I'm probably the least qualified person on the planet to do what I do uh, across the board. You know, I'm a hard worker and I'm very disciplined. And I have a, you know, I don't give up on anything, which can be a two-year detriment. But I have these fundamental foundational pieces that were drilled into me as a kid that I didn't know where I was going to put them later in life. I didn't even realize I needed to put them anywhere. Then they started to show up. And so to give a guy like me a challenge to say, you know, you can't do this unless you do this, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. I kid all the time, you know, that my best grades in school were lunch and gym. They really were, but I did okay in some of the other things too. But I was not a, you know, I was in the top half of the class or top third. I don't remember in high school. Uh, but the wor the, the the world I've lived in for the last quarter century is so far beyond the life I ever thought I would have as a young man that it was like um, doing this thing for John had me looking my own life. And I think that's really what this morning's all about for me. What will people say about me 25 years after I'm gone? I have no clue. Will I even be remembered 25 years after I'm gone? No idea. 
Is it even important that I'm remembered 25 years after I'm gone? I don't know if it is or it isn't. But I do know that one of the traits that John has, that this John also has, was this find out why you're here. Get about your business. I'm not sure exactly where that comes from in me, but it's in me. And so when the opportunity came to do radio and all those pieces came together, I knew at some point this is why I was born. And it's not just radio per se, but it's also speaking and writing books and doing platform stuff and helping other people find their voice as well. And I can tell you that it was like a, um, a mirror to some degree when you realize here's this guy that sold you know over 50 million albums around the world and made a huge impact in people's lives and is remembered in a good way 25 years after his death, had me thinking about the books that I've written and the thousands of radio shows I've done and the two TED Talks I've had the opportunity to do and speaking uh, from, from crowds of th- two people to 2,000. And I'll never forget the, one of the first times I ever spoke in public. And I had been doing a bit of speaking at the time. This has got to be, this is before I, I mean, this is 30 years ago. And somebody in one of the audiences that I had uh, spoken with uh, came up and said, you know, you really need to be in a bigger setting than this. So great, let's figure that out. So I rented a place here in Chicago or near Chicago called the Schomburg Prairie Center for the Arts Theater. It holds like a thousand people or something. And all I remember is that there was a snafu somewhere about getting the word out about what the exact date of when I was going to speak and what I was even going to speak about. I never use notes. I mean, I, it just all shows up and I do the best I can with what comes through my head. And the woman that had kind of booked this, you know, dropped the ball somewhere with publicity. I don't remember all the pieces except for the fact that I do remember that when the doors opened that night, in a, in, a, in a place that seats a thousand people, there were two, actually three. I was the third one. And I'll never forget the guy coming backstage to the green room where I was getting ready. I was going to put on a nice shirt and pants and, you know, nice shoes and all that kind of get ready. And he walked in, he goes, well, the good news is that the doors are open and the stage looks great and, and we're ready to go. And the bad news is there's only two people here in a room that holds a thousand, 998 empty seats. And I knew I had a choice. This is like one of those little tests you get because it really wasn't so much about how many tickets were sold or anything like that. It was like, would you speak to just two people or do you need a thousand? And so I remember going out, walking out on stage, the lights are on. It's a beautiful room, still is. And there were two people sitting in the front row and they were friends of mine and they were coming to support me. And there they sat in the front row and I walked out and we all just kind of had a laugh. And I sat on the edge of the stage and I had him turn all the lights up in the place because what's the point? There's nobody else there but us. And we talked for, I don't know, an hour. I mean, I rented the place, might as well use it. And I knew then that I was supposed to just do it whether there's two or 2,000. I mean, that was, that's what you get because I have no control over that, just like this show. I have no idea how many people are going to listen to this particular podcast. There's a counter on the page that shows the the views of it, but not the downloads. That's an internal thing. So it may have, you know, 500 views, but there's 5,000 people downloaded. It's a behind-the-scenes deal. And the, the thing that I did this past week for John Denver ended up 
being pushed on Facebook by uh, John's estate, which runs his management and runs the Facebook page, and that went to a million people. And so I think about the time and energy and effort I put in to put that special together for him, which turned out to be a mirror for myself, which then in turn allows a lot of human beings around the planet to, to listen to his music and his words again and listen to stories about him and maybe see their own lives differently. But as I sat here for a couple of months alone in my studio, with the exception of the, uh, the guests in my ear, and then editing it all down and putting it together and all the pieces that go to make that work, um, it's, it, was a, it, was a, it was more than two people. I felt like I was in that room again. This time it's full. And that was kind of interesting. So it's been an interesting journey for the last 25 years for me. Uh, my life is very, very different than it was back then. My kids are grown, of course, and living their lives, and they don't need me as much as I need them. That has totally reversed. You know, when you're a parent, at least for me, when my kids were little, they need you, right? They need you for all these different things, just to survive and eat and all that stuff. Now it's changed. You know, my daughter is a very successful executive in downtown Chicago and does stuff that I couldn't possibly imagine when I was her age. Uh, and, and, and is doing great. Uh, my son lives in Upper Michigan, and he works. He's, you know what? Maybe they're kind of like both sides of me. On one hand, I have that executive side because I've had to be at places like Harpo and and work with high level people. And and then the other side, my son uh, works for the railroad, and he loves it. He's outside guy and construction guy, and I have that too. So it's like kind of mirror images on both sides. But now they're grown. And they don't need me as much as I need them, which makes me bug them more than they used to bug me. I love, that's one of the good things I like about my phone is that I can just text and, you know, we can go back and forth. That's, that's a great feature. I don't take very many pictures. And they should just call it a camera because that's really what people do. It's not a phone. It's a texting camera is what it is. Very expensive. Anyway, I digress. So thinking about that and how my life was then and as opposed to how it is now and what have I accomplished and what have I done with the time that I've been given and some of it I'm really really good with you know in the last 25 years I've written three books I didn't ever think I'd re write any books why would I think I'd write a book and it came and it worked and so much of what I've put myself into had very little to do with me just showing up was really the main thing so much of what I've accomplished really comes from the fact that I just kept showing up, you know, tough to get rid of me. And I'll remember the late, great WGN radio host, Roy Leonard, who it turned out from behind the scenes long after he'd retired. And this is going on 10 years ago, more than that, maybe 14 years ago, I was doing uh, air shifts on WGN. And to me, that was like the biggest deal in the world because I came back to Chicago and I, I was on WGN. This is the, the station I grew up listening to. My folks did. My folks were gone at that point. I just, I'll never forget the first day I, I was on WG and I walked outside on Michigan Avenue and I just overwhelming sense of sadness on one hand that my mom and dad weren't there that morning to listen to their son on the radio who they never thought would ever be on the radio anyway. And then I was extremely proud of the fact that it came about at all. And I was able to do that, you know, and, and, and pull that off and to be part of that. But Roy Leonard, it turns out, was a behind-the-scenes fan of what I did. And on an ongoing basis, he would regularly call and harass the WGN management, saying, "You got this is your guy. This guy embodies what's going on in Chicago. He's a Chicago guy, grew up here, he gets it, but he's also worldly, and you're not going to find anybody like that. So he would constantly harass WGN management to sign me to a long-term contract. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, 
But what did happen is I was able to meet Roy Leonard before he passed away. And he pulled me to the side one day and he says, kid, just stick around the edges of this business because you never know what's going to happen. And at some point when you think it's over, it's really just going to start. So one of, I've taken that to heart. And one of the things that I've been good with is sticking to it no matter what. You know, I've said many times in a lot of the talks that I've given, when you find that thing is your calling and it becomes a career, your job is to, is to stay on the path. And it changes and turns and goes up and down and, and you can ride it out the best you can. And it's okay to falter, but not to waver. And, I'm, and I, I've always felt that no matter what form delivering the mail takes, which is kind of how I see all this, you know, whatever download I get, whatever information comes to me, whatever I'm able to see the world at a certain way, I like to translate that into something where it makes people's lives better. That's why I call this the Life 2.0 podcast. It's to up the, the, the concept and the vibrancy of our lives. And, it, you know, and, and if you read the headlines, that's not the deal. That's why it's important to stay in the lifelines and not so much the headlines. But this, no matter what platform showed up in front of me, whether I was doing talking to two people in a, in a cavernous auditorium or 2,000 people at a, in a conference in Trinidad or speaking to 2 million people, on my radio show with, with, uh, with Oprah radio, it's all the same to me. It has to be because if I just judged it by how many people are listening, then I shouldn't be doing it at all. So for thousands of hours over the years, I've sat in studios alone, just like this one today, talking to the abyss, throwing it out into the world with the sole purpose and intent of somewhere along the line in this conversation or whatever comes to me, whatever kind of connection this is between myself and the audience, wherever you are and whoever you are, that there's something in here that might make your life a little bit better. That, that somehow it, it enhances the experience of being human. And I don't take that lightly. I take myself pretty lightly. I'm, I, you know, listen, I, I get who I am. I also get who I'm not, but the mission going out and delivering the mail. This is what I came here to do. And this is what I've done and will continue to do until I'm not here. And I think John Denver did the same thing in his own way. And all the great people who have made lives better and enhanced lives for people, that's what they do. Jane Goodall delivers the mail. This is the mail she's supposed to deliver. And, and if you read it, great. If you don't, you don't. But it doesn't mean she stops delivering the mail. And that's how it is across the board for me. It's tough being human. It's tough. You know, I, I, uh, I read a book many, many years ago called The Road Less Traveled by the late, great M. Scott Peck. And I found the book doing my rounds as a security guy at the Ramado Hotel O'Hare, which is now long gone. And somebody left it behind in a room. And I, well, what's this? And I am of the ilk that when the student is ready, the teacher appears in many different forms. And I saw this book and I sat down that night and read it from midnight to six o'clock in the morning, read the entire book. I still have it. And he goes on to talk about that life is difficult, that it, it's a great truth that life is difficult. And if we would understand that going in, it makes life easier, which seems to be the opposite. So to know that life is difficult actually makes life easier because you're not expecting it to be easier. You should know that it's difficult. What a great paradigm shift for me it was. And I 
I looked back at the things that were difficult to me because we think life should be different than it is. The, the fact that expectation and reality never line up is the key to all of it, in my opinion, observation and experience. We expect things to be different than they are, and they're not, we suffer. When we accept the reality of the way things are, we don't, it's painful, but we don't suffer because we accept the reality of it. Now, for some people, you're like, what the hell did he just say? Go back and listen to it. Expectation and reality rarely line up. We suffer to the extent we expect that it should be different. But when we get, when you push all that away and look at the reality of our lives, our situations, whatever it may be, yeah, it's painful and it sucks. But you don't suffer because suffering comes from expectation. And to the extent that we cling to our things, whether they're ideas or people or places or what have you. And one of the uh, comments from that John Denver thing last week, Annie Denver herself said, she says, you know, all this external stuff's going to pass away. It's all just going to pass away. What matters most is the time you spent with the people you care about and the people you love and the people that are important to you. And no more was that kind of apparent about what the value is of something to me. As yesterday, we went to the Meekum Auto Auction, which I'm a big fan of this stuff. Uh, all these classic cars and assorted vehicles from all over the place. And it's all up for, for auction. And I've had so many cars in my life, I basically lost count. There's about three or four out of the probably 50 or 40 I've had that were could have been worth something later. But who would have thought back then it was only worth X and over the time it became worth Y. And so sitting there yesterday watching these vehicles go up for auction. By the way, if you're the kind of person that can do an auction call, my hat is off to you. I don't know how that, I mean, it's just freaking amazing. One thing to see it on TV, another thing, thing to see it in person. And they had to qu switch these men out like every 10 minutes because you can't do it for that long without probably tearing up your esophagus. But to see these vehicles go by, that one time were cost this amount of money. This was the price you pay. And now they're worth this since solely because they're sitting there. They've, they've changed over time or somebody wants them to me is not unlike our lives. I mean, it's a stretch maybe, if, if, but follow me here. Uh, a friend of mine had a 1979 Pontiac Trans Am. He bought it brand new in 79 for $6,100. It's the kind of car that you see in Smoking the Bandit that Burt Reynolds drove. He probably bought it because of that. So it's this beautiful black Pontiac with the big Firebird on the hood and all that stuff. T-tops, great car. Either somebody stole it or it was wrecked. I can't recall which. But anyway, I'm sitting there watching these cars go by and we had out, walked around outside and I took a bunch of pictures. And again, I, I appreciate the, the craftsmanship, the, the whole thing. I'm a, I'm a car guy. And in the same breath, I'm thinking, you know, well, why is something worth this now when, you know, how does that happen? So as I'm sitting there watching these cars go by, that 1979 Pontiac Trans Am comes up for auction and it went for like $25,000. It had, I don't know, 75,000 miles on it. You know, so it had been sitting in a garage basically and it was clean and all that kind of stuff. But it was, you know, it wasn't a high-end collector's car, but it was 25 grand. So I sent the pictures to my friend who I still in touch with from high school and the exact same car that he had that he paid $6,100 for in 1979 is now worth $25,000 to somebody. Now, I don't know how many owners there's been in between or anything like that, but the point is, is that over time, things can appreciate in value. They can also depreciate in value. There's cars that nobody wanted to touch. So I kept thinking about how we're like that as humans. You know, what have I done with my life in the last 25 years 
to make the value appreciate, if at all. And so I sit back and look at, I've done I, I 25,000 hours of radio. I've talked to about 16,000 guests from around the world. I've written three books, two TED Talks. But that's all the stuff that's on a, a bio somewhere. It's all the stuff you don't see in between, I think, that's where it matters the most. And that, you know, you stay with the, with the ups and downs of your life and you try to bring some sense to the senseless and find the obvious truths and the absurdity of life along the way. And that's where the value comes from for me, to stick with that. So I know it's a bit of a stretch <laughs> to compare a 1979 Pontiac Trans Am to life, but that's kind of how I see things sometimes. Who gets to determine what the value is? Some, Who decides that? The guy barking up front, the person who's willing to open their checkbook, uh, everybody else there didn't think it was worth 25000 Only one guy did. So now he owns it. And it was just one of those little weird, quirky things like, eh, isn't that interesting? It is for me. Listen, I'm going to do... Uh, I wasn't planning on this, but I was semi-planning on it. You know, let's let's put it that way. I had leftover audio that I was unable to get to for that Denver thing. And while a lot of it was stories and songs, didn't really have a chance to hear him talk. And I have hundreds of tapes with me speaking. So when I'm gone, my kids are going to have to figure out what the hell to do with all this stuff. Maybe they'll keep some of them and my voice will always be around. You know, my folks have been gone a long time. Their voice gets more faint in my head. And if nothing else, my kids will have hundreds and hundreds of shows to remember what I sound like, not to mention all this digital stuff that I do now. And that kind of excites me. That's a good thing. You know, that's something that can live on a little bit, whether there's value there or not over time, just like the auto auction that remains to be seen. But I came across some clips many, many years ago that John did in 1980 called On Being Human. It's a talk that he gave in, in uh, Aspen where he lives at the time, about everything under the sun that was, you know, he, he wanted to talk about. And he called it that so he could speak to everything that concerned him. So in addition to the music that made people happy for so many years, I thought I would uh, finish up this podcast with my friend, uh, but not singing, but speaking. And uh, a lot of what he talks about in here might be dated material, because it was in 1980. A lot of it, though, to me is timeless. And just like the auto auction over time, the value of his words and what he had to say. Now, this is condensed out of a two-hour talk that he gave. I've cut, cut it down about 10 minutes. I think the value has increased for me. And I know that most people have never heard this. Certainly uh, not at any of the shows I've ever done. So I was able to get this. It's called On Being Human from 1980. I'm going to let John finish the show. I want to thank you for taking the time all these years whether you heard me back at WDBC in Escanaba, whether you heard me on the Radio Results Network, whether you heard me on WGN, CBS, NBC, uh, the Martha Stewart Channel, the Oprah Channel, across the board, podcasting, um, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of this and allowing me to have a, a little bit uh, of your time uh, over these years. I'm going to turn it over to JD. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Adios. I had this wonderful topic on being human. That is a wonderful title for uh, my talk. I can talk about anything. <laughs> Which is exactly why I chose that title. 
It also allows me to, uh, to address certain aspects of ourselves which no matter who you are or where you come from or what faith you have or what political or sociological system you adhere to, I think that some of what I have to say tonight is going to, to speak to you. You know, there's 8,000 things that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and that's, that's been the case for a while. This is only about the seventh time that I've ever spoken to people, made a, a, a speech, if you will. And it's something that, uh, that I'm getting used to, and I hope that I have the chance to do more often. But I've never before looked forward to speaking to somebody as I have here, to my friends and neighbors here in Aspen with whom I feel such a strong connection about what I want to do in the world. So I'd like to start this evening, I want to tell you a little bit about myself and, and where these things that I'm going to tell you tonight come from. And it's not the stuff that you hear in, uh, or read about in biographies or newspaper interviews, necessarily. It's going to be just some things that I feel about myself that I've noticed in looking back about why it is that I'm doing these things that I'm doing today. I was always a very insecure person. It is only recently that I've overcome that, if I have. And I feel that I have. And it, it troubled me why I was so insecure. You know, I never had to worry anything. Life has always been pretty good to me. My father was in the service. He had a guaranteed income. Uh, we lived well. I was never hungry. I never had a hard time from many of the things that you generally think about, you know, people who are suffering in the world. But I suffered a lot, and I did feel insecure. And it's because it seems to me that, that somehow I felt a little bit differently than anybody that I knew. Some of the things that I felt inside me, some of the things that I did, the way that I lived, the things that I liked to do, that I had the strength to do, the things that I didn't like to do, and no matter how hard I was pushed, I would not go with that. You know, and it just seemed like there was nobody like me, really. Well, one of the things that I've learned is that somehow for me, it's, it's not that there was nobody like me. I think that we're all the same, quite frankly. But the world in which we live as human beings and the way the world acts on us as human beings and the way human beings relate with other human beings has created a kind of situation where it's really not okay to be yourself. And if I was different... It's because I was always willing to be myself. That was difficult. That was very painful. And then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, over, over a period of time, uh, I got involved in making a film. Now, I, uh, things were going pretty well. For, I tell you, oh God, I don't know if any of you saw that movie. Oh God floated around Hollywood for about five years with very little interest from anybody. The closest it got to being made a film is that they talked to Alan Arkin about playing Jerry Landers, the role that I played in the movie. And uh, it just never went any further than that. Well, during that same time period, we were starting to take a look at whether or not I might be able to do a movie or not. And I was interested in that. I would like to try that. I would like to do it. But I just didn't want to do a movie to do a movie. I wanted to do something that, that you know, meant something to me or had something that, that I could identify with, relate to, the way I feel about my music, you know? And, uh, and that we looked at several hundred scripts, and there was just nothing. 
And all of a sudden I got this little script, Oh God. And I read it and was, was just delighted in the story. Shed a few tears, laughed a lot. And I said, yeah, this is what I want to do. And so I went back to my office in Los Angeles and got Jerry Weintraub. And we started working to put that film together. And eventually ended up making the movie. So I'd like to tell you the scene, you know, the whole thing worked for me. But there was one particular scene that, that keyed it all in for me, if you will. It's a scene where Jerry Landers first comes face to face with God in the bathroom. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> and it's like he's all of a sudden starting to believe that this guy is, is who he says he is. And so he asks him, why is it that you chose this particular time to, uh, to appear? And God says in the script, well, I, I made the world to work. Time out. Little click over here for me. I believe the world was made to work. So I read that and went on. says, but I look down now and you've, you're filling my rivers full of crap. The skies, the air you can't breathe. You know, it's, you're, you're, you're wasting my world. And Jerry Lannis agrees with that. He says, have you read the papers lately? I mean, it ain't working. Click. It wasn't working, folks, three, four years ago when we started doing that, and it's working even less so now, in my opinion. So then he says, well, Jerry asked God, why don't you do something about it? And God says, why don't you do something about it? It's your world. Click. <laughs> it's our world. If we pull it out... It's not going to be because of divine intervention or some miraculous thing that occurred over here. It's, because, it's going to be because we chose to do it. We started acting like human beings. Jerry Landers says to God, but we need help. And God says, that's why I gave you each other. <laughs> I believe that we are for, here for each other. Not against each other. In fact, I don't believe that. I know it. I'll try to be very careful tonight and tell you what I think or what I believe and what I know. And I know that the world was made to work. I know that we have everything that it takes to have life grow fruitfully, multiply and be fulfilling and satisfying for every living creature. We have all it takes. And I know that we are here for each other. And it is when we start acting like that, that we will make the world work. I see absolutely nothing that is without purpose. From the smallest particle of an atom to the universe itself, it is full of purpose. There is seemingly intelligence behind it. It works on a time perhaps that is that makes our day-to-day -day existence in this world insignificant, but to me it is a living, breathing universe. And it contains life. And everywhere I see life, again, there is purpose. From the smallest blade of grass to you and I. You know, now you look at, at things and 
And it's, it's pretty easy to, uh, to, to figure out purpose, not reason, I'm not talking about a reason for something, but that there's a purpose in, in, in its existence. And yet so many of us seem to question our own purpose. Is there a purpose in our existence? Well, I have to tell you that I feel that there is. I'm not necessarily sure what it is, but in relation to everything else around us, obviously, we must have a purpose. Then what can that purpose be? We separate ourselves with your farmer or businessman. We separate ourselves whether you are a man or woman. I mean, it's gotten to that. It used to be just young and old. Now it's man and woman. You know, it's always been black or white. I mean, those were obvious differences. So here we live in a world of ab absolute separationist tendencies. And everybody is supporting that. Some people, by not thinking about it, not doing anything, not caring, and other people, by consciously setting it up so that we're against each other. And we haven't learned a thing. We're still following them. You know, we still stumble blindly on trusting that they're going to, you know, whatever problems are, they're going to take care of it. And yes, there have always been problems. And for a long time, they were over there. And they didn't really concern us because they were over there. Or that was something that was going on, but it didn't really affect too many people. It certainly didn't affect me. And I'm going to pretend like it never happened under the rug here. We can't do that anymore, folks. If they all 